So today is my penultimate sermon. That's the term you use for next to last, in case you guys didn't know. Penultimate. It's the penultimate sermon for my presence in the preaching arc um, for the last 15 years. So be prepared for next week. It'll be the last sermon in the preaching arc. I'll still be here to guest star occasionally. Um, <clears throat> but I might have a lot to say. And if we keep up our, our uh, ten minute praise and prayer, then, <laughs> then maybe I'll have time to. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to be talking next week about a godly legacy through intimacy and vulnerability and um, the fruit of leadership being that. Um, it seems like it will be a nice way to end my particular involvement in the preaching arc. But today, we're going to be talking about the gathering of believers. And specifically, that the fruit of a godly leadership produces a godly gathering. So this is my opening paragraph, um, which I'm sure you guys will appreciate. The fruit of a godly leadership is planted in the death of Christ and risen into discipline that is oriented toward God, consistent in its application, with a thought life that constantly communicates with God to give him thanks for all he has done, is doing, and will do. This discipline produces a stable narration for our lives that is based in scripture and propagated by the social network of the local body. It self-replicates and brings harmony throughout the body of Christ, to the whole world. This, through this godly leadership, we become not alone. We are not alone in space, having brothers and sisters in most countries now, and God willing, every country eventually by the spreading of the gospel. For those of you who have paid attention, all of those things should be there. You guys should all know exactly what I'm talking about when I use terms like consistent or stable narration, for instance. These are all things that I've been building on. Um, <clears throat> but like I said, today we're going to talk about the gathering and this concept of being alone. Uh, you'll have to excuse me. I'm getting over uh, being sick, so I'm a little fatigued in my voice. And in general, um, <clears throat> what we have to realize is that we are a gathering, that we are not just the individuals, that we are not alone. This concept of harmony that I've been talking about, of harmonizing with each other, uh, gives us the idea that we are not alone. We're not alone, not only in space, as I was talking about with um, the sharing of the gospel, that in space we can see in different locations that we're not alone. If any of you have the opportunity to go to other countries, or you have come from other countries, you will know that pretty much in any civilized and sometimes in uncivilized places, you will find people who sincerely believe in the same God that we believe in. And it's probably one of the most moving experiences, one of the most um, interesting, dynamic, moving experiences you can have to go to a place that doesn't speak your language, but you can tell that they're worshiping your God. It's one of the most profound things that you can do. You can do that on a small level by going to different cultures that do speak your language. So that means whenever you're out of town, for instance, going to a place, um, going to a church service and finding that little subsect of culture and understanding that these people also worship God. 
but we are not alone. That's the main point. We are not alone in space. But beyond not being alone in space, we're also not alone in time. We have our faithful brothers and sisters who died before this time, before our time. They're both audible and they're unheard. Those people who walked the earth praising our God before we were ever conceived of. Before, and, and I mean that not just in thought, but also physically, before we were conceived of. Just the same way that an expectant mother prays for her unborn child. All of us here, and don't think for a second it's not true, have been blanketed in the prayer of those who came before us, whose voices we've never heard before. They, they prayed for us to be right before God. They prayed for us to be enabled with the gifts of God. They prayed for our success in the spreading of the gospel and in our love for each other. Generations past, the apostles, all of these people have prayed for us. And they represent for us a communication with a timeless God who's able to connect us all to each other regardless of the time that we exist in. Regardless of the moment that we exist in. And so we're intimately connected. We're intimately connected to one another through Christ. Past, present, and future. Have you ever heard the saying, Confucius said it first, um, or Bucker Bonsai, for those who might know that reference, uh, if you're, you know, a child of the 80s. Uh, Wherever you go, there you are. You guys ever heard that saying? I will take it one step further and say, wherever we go, there we are. Wherever we go, there are Christians. There is always a remnant who is there. The relationship that we have with each other, therefore, is not just a space relationship, but it's a time relationship. And you, so you may be thinking to yourself, okay, but what about the missionary, for instance, that goes into the field where there are no other Christians? Well, that missionary is not alone. That missionary is with the presence of those people who came before him. The entirety of Christianity praying for his success and praying for the future Christians. It's interesting to note that not only is it the, the past Christians that are there with that Christian, because we have a timeless connection to God through space and time, but also the future Christians who are there, who are going to become Christians. The elect people who are in that tribe, that village, that country, who all they need is to hear the gospel, and then they will become brothers and sisters in Christ. Those people and their prayers are with them too, through a God who exists outside of space and time. The gathering of believers in this way is special. It's special and unique. Its nature is relationally transcendent in that it touches us in every facet of our being. We can lean on the heart. We can lean on the minds. We can lean on the shoulders of believers in every capacity of existence, whether here or there, wherever we go, there we are. However, due to the ease Due to the ease of interaction, the church has always had a problem with exploiting that abundant resource. And that's always going to be the case with man, right? Whenever man has an abundant resource and he has ease in having it, he tends to exploit it. <clears throat> and we've always had that problem. 
with exploiting that resource, the resource of our complete and transcendent connection to each other. Believers will often exploit the grace provided through the gathering by relying on its pervasive nature to excuse their own lack of discipline. They'll note that the church body will make up for individual weaknesses. And so they'll sin so that grace will abound. And then they begin to neglect the body and their connection, knowing that that connection will always be present. So because the body will always stick around and all why not use it? And that's how you can have Christians who claim to be sincere, but have none of the earmarkings of sincerity. They don't look like Christ. They don't act like Christ. Instead, and as talked about last week, they rely on simply identifying with Christ without having the identity of Christ. They're often without Christ in their inner selves, in their identity. And their earmarks of identity are a lack of respect for their own unstable narration. And they view themselves often as ultimately sovereign within the body of Christ. And they have a lack of willingness to be held accountable to the local body because the truth is, is they don't accept any authority except for that which they've given. They don't bring their burdens to the body because they don't want the body up in their business. They give unintentfully when they give at all. They give unintentfully when they give at all to God and to others. They prefer to be emotionally stimulated if they're going to give anything. They want to be moved emotionally before they provide for the mutual expense of taking care of each other's burdens. They reach into their pockets for what they have here and now that happens to be there instead of picking the first fruits of their lives and setting those aside to give to God and his body and his work and his people. And they call that particular sin of neglect toward the body because that's what it is. It's a sin. It's a sin of neglect. They call that particular sin of neglect toward the body being good stewards of what God has given us. And they'll help those who share in their biology or their lusts before they help those who share in their fate. And they often trade and play in power within the body as well. They choose to build only relationships with those that directly, that directly benefit them, preferring some while gossiping about others. They look only to make themselves better but they can't be bothered to make others better. Believing that task to be the responsibility of the naive or the weak-willed or the leaders or the more technical um, way that they'll talk about it sometimes is they believe that task to be the responsibility of somebody with a different gift than them. And they'll spend time tending to a hand that is well while their foot bleeds out because they don't understand that they are not simply a hand. They are a part of a body. They view the gathering of believers as desirable in principle. On paper, it seems like a good idea in principle, but in practice, only when it makes them feel good, when it doesn't conflict with their job or their family or their sleep or sometimes even something as trivial as their television watching. 
They're not holistically oriented toward God. Sure, they're oriented in some ways toward God. But they're not holistically oriented toward God. They're not consistent in that because they lack a thought life with God that is truly thankful for everything, not just some things. And as Sabbath approaches and rolls around and they rest, and they rest in the good that God has done, oftentimes what begins to happen is that their thanks goes to no one but themselves for what has happened. They're impressed with their own good works throughout the course of the week. And so it becomes incredibly easy for them then to take that time to rest in themselves. And slowly but surely, what you have is many people who don't take time for God and set it aside to have a Sabbath before God. It's so easy for people to end up, as it's said in the book of Hebrews, forsaking the gathering of believers each week. So what do I mean by the gathering of believers? You guys have heard the passage where two or three are gathered in my name, right? Scripture speaks about the gathering of believers in that passage, um, and it speaks about it in a couple different ways. But in that passage, Matthew 18, we're going to find a starting point. So in Matthew 18, 19 through 20, Jesus says this, I tell you this, if two of you agree here on earth according or concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among them. So whether, where two or three of you gather together, I am there among them. Some will say that that, that passage is a statement about how many times, about how many people it takes to start a church. Two or three is all it takes to start a church. That's kind of the colloquial understanding of that passage, that you just need two or three. And some will take that passage to mean that if you have any physical gathering of believers that is, you know, over that number, so basically you have more than one believer, that it's sufficient to view that time you spend together not only as a church, but as a legitimate church service. So now if two believers are gathered at the same time, then they're holding a church service. But that is, of course, what we call eisegesis. It's extrapolating something that isn't actually in the text. Notice that verse 19 starts with, uh, follows by setting, follows a tone that was set earlier in the passage. It says, if two of you agree here on earth, my Father in heaven will do it for you. Now, Matthew chapter 18 is a really important passage. There's a lot that goes on in Matthew chapter 18. And it notes the need specifically for the body to be cohesive. That's really what Matthew 18 is talking about, is about the body being cohesive, the body working together, and the importance of that. It's notably the chapter where the church um, takes its ideas of discipline in, where you find how it is that a body is supposed to be separated from each other when that happens. And of course, we all know that when you separate from each other, the purpose of that separation is to cause the body to come back together. Right? Kind of like breaking a bone so that it will set. Correctly. So, Matthew 18 notes the need to be cohesive as a body, and that the power 
of the body of Christ, the power that the body of Christ has and the need to respect that is there and that we have to treat that well. And in this chapter, this is also the chapter where we have Jesus describing that we shouldn't keep little kids away from him because the disciples were trying to make that happen. They were saying he was too good for that, that he was too busy for that. And so he says, don't, don't keep them away from me. And then he makes this comment about how we're supposed to have faith, specifically like that of little children. And he brings judgment upon those who impede the process of keeping people from coming to him, even little children. And then he tells the parable of the lost sheep. And in the parable of the lost sheep, what is it that the good shepherd does? He leaves the flock so that he can bring back the one that's lost so the flock can be whole again. He notes that he doesn't want even one sheep to perish. And then he points out the correct way to admonish a believer who's sinning. And so the emphasis then is on reconciliation. And that's the setup for the passage where he says, when two or three are gathered in my name. Jesus is saying that we seek for the church to be united in this passage. That's the whole point of this passage. We seek for the church to be united and not to be stunted in its path because even the smallest gathering, because even two or three people is special. Even the smallest gathering of believers has power, even two or three. And so the number of believers that you need to create a church isn't the point of the passage at all, is it? That's not the point of the passage. It's not a check mark for you to be able to say, well, if you've got two or three, then you must be a church. No. In fact, what it's saying is that your ideology, your attitude about your gathering is what's important. That we have an understanding that there is something precious, that there's something unique and dynamic present when even the smallest gathering takes their relationship in Christ seriously. That's the point that's being made. It's not about the number. And the gathering must be taken seriously. Anyone who tries to use this passage without taking this gathering seriously, for instance, claiming that a small group of believers can be at a beach on a Sunday, rather than in the gathering, because they themselves are a gathering. As long as there's two of them, that's nonsense. That's eisegesis. That's not what this passage is saying. Because what they're doing there, if what they're doing there is not oriented toward God, is not consistent in the application of that orientation, is not God-oriented in thought in that moment, or seeking to communicate with God in that time, then it's not actively giving him thanks it's not discipline toward him. That is not a gathering of believers. It's merely a social gathering of people who identify as Christians, but whose primary identity in that moment is something different. And more often than not, that will be something innocuous. And this is why you have to consider it, because it seems benign. It seems like it's not a big deal. It'll seem like it's something innocuous. Like a family trip that goes over a Sunday, for instance. And amongst the younger crowds, it, you know, it's even easier 
It could be friends, you know, just going to visit your friends on a road trip. Or even that it's just a nice weekend, and God would want us to enjoy the weather. This is his creation. He wants us to enjoy these things. Now, let me just state this for the record, because I'm sure that there's a grip of you that feel like I'm coming down hard on you. I don't have a problem with people not coming to church occasionally on a Sunday. And I want to say that very clearly. I, for one, don't have a, cro- a problem you know, across the board with somebody missing a Sunday at the local church. I've done it multiple times. I did it several times last year, and I even have it on the books to do it again in the end of January. But don't lie to me. Don't lie to yourselves. And especially don't lie about it in front of your children. And don't lie about it to God. That if your time on that Sunday is not oriented on God, even if the others with you are Christians, that you are somehow the gathering of believers. Because the truth is that you are, in fact, the opposite in that moment. You are a gathering of believers, which makes you sheep outside the pen. Not the gathering of believers who are with their shepherd and the flock in that moment. And that's why you will hear me often say to you, if I find out that you're leaving on a Sunday, that I want you to seek out the gathering of believers. Go attend another local body. Right? Because ABF is not the only place where the gathering of believers happens. It's not. But don't pretend that if you went on a family trip and you're hanging out on a Sunday, or what usually happens is packing up on a Sunday that that is somehow the gathering of believers because you happen to be believers. It's not. For some, this consistency in orientation is just a matter of maturity. Right? It's something where you have to be personally convicted. There was a time in this church's history where the majority of the pastorate that existed, the majority of the eldership, Um, felt that as long as they weren't preaching on the pulpit, that they didn't have to be here on a Sunday. And, let me add to it, they didn't have to be in a gathering of believers. And it took time for even the pastorate to come to a point of maturity where it said that the only time we will not be in in, in this gathering of believers is if there's an undue hardship. And we will make it our priority to join a gathering of believers if we're in another place. So that's why, for instance, when I went to Budapest for, you know, what was it? Almost, it's more than a month. Was it almost two months? It was like six weeks or something. Um, Not only did we go reach out to find a gathering of believers during the day, but because of the time difference, we also participated in cell groups and services at night over in Budapest, you know, through computers. And that's one of the reasons why we pushed so hard in these last couple years 
for instance, to make it possible for you all to still be in this gathering, even if you're gone. And that's not normal, I want to say. A lot of churches broadcast um, their stuff, but they don't open themselves up to uh, like cell groups and things like that. So for some, it's just going to be a matter of time, a matter of maturity that you're going to need to come to. You're still trying to figure out how to connect these different aspects of your life, and that's going to take time. But for others, for others, they lie to themselves. They lie to themselves about their actual orientation in this. And I want to be clear about that. It's in this. The truth is, is that when we repent and we come to Christ, and we are in this, we are in this place when we're saved by God, right? We have repented of our disbelief in God. And so because of that, God saves us. But does that mean that we're then perfect? No. We have a perfect standing before God because the only thing that God uh, requires for our salvation is our belief in him, right? But we're not perfect in our orientation toward God. We still have to turn these various aspects of us. We have to look deep into our lives and ask ourselves, is there something that we're not repenting of? Is there something that we're holding back? So don't ever think that because you have made sure to give this one thing fully to God, that you haven't, that you have given everything fully to God. That's going to be our whole lives, and there's a process of that. We're enabled in that process by the Holy Spirit. That, that process is called sanctification, where we're being made how God sees us. So what I'm saying here is, there are people who lie to themselves about this regarding the body, where they think that they're oriented toward God because they know they're a part of the body, but the truth is, is that they're holding back this one area of their orientation. And there's a warning in Scripture about that, about the idea of bringing an unworthy sacrifice to God, to the table, to the body, and claiming that it is your first fruits. Because that's the issue here. So Acts 5, 1 through 11. There was a certain man named Ananias, who, with his wife, Sapphira, sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount, with his wife's consent. He kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not to sell, as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but you were lying to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and he died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. And about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, Was this the price that you and your husband received for your land? Yes, she replied, that was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young, married, the young men who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they will carry you out too. And instantly she fell to the floor and died. And when the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else 
who heard what had happened. You're saying to yourself, Josh, this isn't about giving money. This is about, you're talking about church attendance. This isn't about giving money. Well, guys, this passage isn't about giving money. This is about lying. This passage tells us something, right? There's a right way to act within the body of Christ. Notice that the Holy Spirit's issue with the couple is not that they didn't give everything, but the fact that they claimed that they did. Peter called that deceit, conspiring to test the Spirit of the Lord. And notice that Ananias and Sapphira were actively giving to the body. It's not like they weren't being good parishioners by today's standards. I want to be clear about that. It is by no means a small deal that the couple sold their property and were willing to give a good chunk of the money that came from their property to the church. That's a big deal. Have any of you, I know some of you have, but have any of you even thought of doing such a thing? That's a crazy act in today's American society. That's a crazy act of uh, commitment to God to say, I'm going to sell my property and I'm going to give the church a big chunk of it, right? That's a big deal. Not lie to ourselves and say that Ananias and Sapphira were, you know, I don't know what you would call it, <coughs> bad parishioners by today's standards. Today's standards would probably see them as great parishioners who were incredibly giving, and we might even call them committed. But the problem is that God didn't see it that way. It's lying to the body about the quality of the gift. That's the issue. And Peter rightly notes that the wronged party is not simply the body of Christ, but because it is the body of Christ, it is therefore Christ himself and therefore God who is being wronged in this. And notice that Peter did not suffer this. So we're talking about godly leadership and the fruit that it produces. And so I'm going to say this to you now, and I know that sometimes you guys don't like what I have to say, and this will be one of those things that you don't like what I have to say. But as a leader, sometimes the fruit that is produced, which is godly, terrifies the body. He not only allowed their deaths to happen, but he also submitted to its happening and its consequence. And the result of that was that fear gripped the body. Anybody who tells you that God doesn't allow these things to happen within his body hasn't read this passage or numerous others. Leadership that is helpful is not always wanted and it's not always without stress on our mental health. And personally, I think that we need more Ananias and Sapphira-like consequences to weed out that type of disrespectful behavior towards God by the way that we as believers treat his body. 
Notice that just because Ananias and Sapphira were among believers, they were counted as among believers, that did not make them a part of the gathering. Just being among believers does not make you a part of the gathering because proximity doesn't matter to a God who is outside space and time. Merely being a gathering of believers does not make you the gathering of believers. It is your heart. It is your orientation. Not your identification, but your identity, which makes you a part of the gathering of believers. It is the whole man in Christ who must gather with another whole being in Christ, at least in sincere intent, if not sloppiness, at least with a sincere intent for the whole person to gather together, because anything less is a lie, and it is you conspiring to test the Spirit of God, and there's dire consequences for that. Ananias and Sapphira, they got off easy, if you ask me. The judgment of God rests upon most of the churches in the Portland area that you look at as they die out and become less and less and less a picture of what God wants his church to be. That's a much worse judgment, if you ask me. That anti-gathering that has plagued Christianity, it, it's plagued Christianity from the moment they realized that there was something special about the fact that they were meeting together. And the author of Hebrew notes it in chapter 10. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, he says, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope that we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. And let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good work. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Notice the author's admonition for the church. He wants them to hold tightly without wavering. And this is a call not to just hold to each other at times, but in a discipline. In a discipline, we hold tightly to each other. In a discipline of consistency. And then he goes on to admonish a thought life which builds communication with another and has implications in real space, and real time. And if you look at this passage, it's all there. Everything that I've said about the discipline that we're supposed to have, it's all there. Orientation, consistency, thought life, thanks that God's will can be trusted to keep his promises. And directly after this, he says, let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do. So it's all connected. And when that consistency and that discipline that I've been talking about for the last three weeks is not present, then what naturally follows is that the gathering of believers begins to fall apart, and then we begin to neglect our meeting together, as has been done since Hebrews was written. 
Remember that this gathering of believers is not one of proximity. Remember, Ananias and Sapphira were amongst the brothers, but only in actions, actions that other people could see. And the author of Hebrews, like I said, he encourages us to gather not just physically, but in our thought life. What's the way that he words it? He says to think of ways to encourage. Think of ways to encourage one another and to not neglect the meeting together. And I would suggest that though the application here is on the surface one of a physical gathering, the mindset that seeks out ways to encourage the brethren is what's important here. As we've noted many, many times, the mind comes before the body. Not having that practice of seeking out ways in our thought life to encourage one another to do the good works of God is the problem, and it is the essence of the gathering to have a thought life that does do that. Not having this practice in our thought lives is precisely the reason why people were neglecting to meet together, because they didn't have that practice in their thought life, because they identified with a particular body, but not in their hearts. And so quickly, their actions, though having the appearance of commitment, became ways in which they were actually testing the spirit of the Lord. And because of that, they were guilty to die. Because the gathering of believers is not first where you go. It's first who you are. The gathering of the believers resides first in our hearts. When a person's heart is oriented towards something, that is what he emphasizes and focuses on in his life. That's what he longs for. A godly leader produces not just a gathering of believers, but he produces the gathering of believers. Not one not ones who merely are in proximity, but ones whose hearts belong to each other. He produces the gathering of believers whose hearts belong to each other. Hearts that long for each other. Hearts that discipline themselves in the whole man toward ways to, quote, motivate one another to acts of love and good works. This is the heart of the gathering. You guys have all heard the term living for the weekend, right? Where a person works, but he longs to be done with work so that he cannot work. Christians are not living for the weekend. In all things, we are present with our people. And our hearts should not want to break from each other any more than our hearts want to break from our children or our spouses. Now, don't get me wrong. 
because our bodies and our minds sometimes need a break. Our bodies and our minds, they need to rest. They're bound to finite shell. But our hearts should always remain oriented toward God, and that includes his body. That includes each and every one of you. I was once told by a former minister that I didn't need to concern myself with what happened in my church when I was on a vacation. Because even pastors need a vacation, and so I should not need to concern myself with what's happening in my church. But the problem is, is that concern comes from the heart. Perhaps my mind doesn't need to focus on the management of the church, because at least in this church, it's in good hands. Between the elders and the deacons, we have this on lock. Perhaps my body, my body doesn't need to focus on the church because it's present in a different location and, you know, it's made specifically to experience those things in a different location, so it would be operating against that if I tried to, I don't know, go into a trance and go, you know, separate my mind and float away to another place and experience that instead. That's what I'm looking for, astral projection. But my heart, my heart should always ache for you. And it should always long for you. And it should feel deeply when we're separated. It should be aware of that separation, and that should be negative, not positive. And it should rejoice at the thought of when we can meet together again each week. The heart in the whole man doesn't go on vacation. So you need to go on vacation, and that will take you away from us. Okay. But that should pain your heart. And your heart should view that as a burden, one that's not taken lightly, because your love for each other is so strong that it's a threat to your discipline of orientation and consistency and thought life and thankfulness on the level of the heart. And that's why you've heard me say that if you're going to go on vacation over one of our normal gatherings that you do, what? Connect to the body. Because if your heart is oriented as it should be, you should be longing for a way to keep it consistent. Remember, just being among those who believe doesn't mean being in the gathering. It just means being in a gathering. As discussed earlier, the gathering of believers should look disciplined, oriented towards God, consistent in a thought life that communicates praise to God in all things. But how does that play out in our day-to-day? See, up to this point, I've really spoke in the negative about what the gathering is not, right? And truthfully, to fully understand what the body is, is something that I'm not sure that can really be exhaustively spoke on. Because we're talking about something that's precious and dynamic and part of who God is. 
So it's going to be bigger than my ability to speak on it. But to continue to grow your understanding of it, I would encourage you to read the epistles. Specifically, the epistles were written with this in mind. They're written to church bodies to teach them how to long for each other. To teach them how to have the discipline that we're talking about. The discipline of orientation, consistency, thought life, and thankfulness. That said, I do want to leave you with some thoughts that should be true across all local churches. Really one specific one. Aside from the ones I've alluded to, that our bodies are to be the whole person, disciplined and with each other in heart first. There's one last point that I really want to lean heavily upon as we shepherd this body here at ABF in expectation for Christ's return. And I noted that the fruit of godly leadership is the gathering of believers, one which is unique and one which is transcendent to space and time. And so I have to ask, if that's true, why we tend not to think of each other in the sense of a finished narrative, but instead, when we think of each other, we tend to lock each other into the box of status and station, not transcendently, but finitely. And I feel that I am uniquely able to say that this is something we do. Because the majority of my time in ministry has been split between preparing to teach you and dealing with your guys' infighting. Now, sometimes that'll be infighting amongst yourselves, like in your mind, with yourself, right? Sometimes that'll be infighting with each other. But I can tell you that nine times out of ten, those fights have to deal with how you view each other in your hearts. What story are we telling ourselves about each other? Are we telling a story where the young teenager is an annoying, green, hormone-driven wreck of a person? Where they're as immature in their bodies as they are as their mind and their hearts? Is that what you older people tell yourselves about the younger people in this church? as you listen to them squawk about whatever they squawk about, Instagram or whatever? What story are you telling yourselves, young people, about the older people? That they're rigid and still use Facebook? Is that how we should be viewing each other? And I'm sort of making light of it, right, when I talk about social media, but I'm asking the question seriously. Like, how are we viewing each other? Are we viewing each other transcendently or are we viewing each other finitely? Are we projecting the promises of God upon each other? Shouldn't we be seeing each other if it's God's will? All of us. Shouldn't we be seeing all of each other as old and seasoned saints upon which the next generation will place its burden? And I'm going to direct that more at old people to young, for the record. 
Shouldn't we be looking at the younger generations, the babies or the teenagers alike? Shouldn't we be viewing them as old and seasoned saints? Do our hearts long for them? Do our hearts long for the success of the people around us? And you know I don't mean the making of the money when I say the success. Does our mind seek for, as the scriptures say, ways in which we can encourage them and equip them to do every good work? Or do we consider that that time is done for us? Because we're older and we already did our time. Do we consider that they are not relevant to us? How can we reconcile the transcendent nature of God's body and its connection to us when we choose to fracture it by relegating the future saints of the church to the babies that they are now. It would be the same as regarding Peter as a traitor because he denied Christ, or Paul as a killer because he was there when Stephen was killed. God sees us as more than that, and we have to extend that same view to each other. Consider the way in which Paul strings together a long-term narrative regarding Timothy. 2 Timothy 1, 5 through 7. I remember your genuine faith, for you share the faith that first filled your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I know that same faith continues strong in you. And this is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. For God has not given us fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. So never be ashamed to tell others about the Lord. Paul credits Timothy's faith to his grandmother and then to Timothy's mother, and then he encourages Timothy to fan the flame that was given to him in legacy, to fan it so that it goes out from him and continues to spread from person to person and grow the church. And that process started by giving that faith with confidence to another, projecting upon them the truth that they are important to God's design. How often do you talk to each other that way? How often do you look at the young person that you find annoying because of where they are and remind them of who they are to be? How often do you look at the older person who feels tired because of who they've been and remind them of who they still are to be? Imagine if Eunice or Lois or Paul were instead to say to Timothy, you're too young to be in ministry. Wait till you matter. That's not how it would be said. That's not PC enough. But yeah, wait till you matter. Wait till you're older and you have the degrees that I have, or you at least have the 15 years of preaching that I have. 
Then you can talk about God. No, that's not what happens. Instead, Paul folds Timothy into the legacy. He folds Timothy into the legacy. And I want to point this out. This legacy is not one that Paul started. Paul didn't start the legacy. It was his grandmother, Timothy's grandmother, that started that legacy. So what does Paul do? Something really important. He accepts the fact that somebody else did the work. And he acknowledges that their work is the same work. Because Paul is mutually invested in any work that is part of the greater body, regardless of whether it is here or now. Paul didn't say, you know, Paul didn't send a letter to Eunice or Lois about Timothy saying, good for you, you did right by that boy, he's not my responsibility, keep doing right by him. He didn't say, good for Eunice and Lois, but he's not my responsibility. So the test of whether you are, uh, the test of whether Timothy is ready for ministry will be if he fails at it. How many of you do that? How many of you, while claiming to have a heart for each other, bringing your first fruits, look at each other and say, hey, good for you that you're doing okay. Um, I don't really need to be invested and involved in your growth as a person. Um, hopefully you don't fail at it. We'll see. That's not what Paul did. He recognized that we long to sing in harmony with each other. But to do that, we have to think beyond the moment. Not just beyond the moment of here, but beyond the moment of now. We have to think beyond this moment. We have to think beyond this place. We have to think transcendently, beyond the scope of our own biology, our own space, and even our own time. We have to be invested in each other. And we need to stand with those who will stand with us in the ranks of our king. Not missing that opportunity because we look upon saints with the unstable narration of our own earthly eyes and are fooled by bright and shiny things. We need to be quick to allow for sanctification. We need to be quick to allow for sanctification. We need to default to grace. That will give us all that we need to live out the law of Christ. The law of love for each other and love for God. A godly leader produces the gathering of believers. People who understand their interdependence. Who see each other transcendently whose thirst for each other is an orientation of the heart and a practice of the mind and not just a way that we speak. 
or a willingness to sit next to each other in church. To be the gathering, we can't just show up alone. Wherever we are, there we have to be. No one can be left behind. And that requires us to slow down for each other. To allow each other to catch up. You know, God could have ended this a long time ago. But you know what he says? He says the reason why he hasn't come yet is because he's waiting. He's waiting for us. Waiting for every last morsel of his creation to be redeemed. Do we do that? Do we wait for each other? Or do we just get irritated that some people are lagging? We need to gather with each other in our hearts. Not just in this place. Not just at this time. But transcendently, starting in our hearts. We need to gather with each other in our hearts. We don't need to gather with each other in our identifications. We don't need to gather with each other in our intersectionality. We don't need to gather with each other in our anxieties or the different things that captivate us. Not in persecution, not in death. The way that we need to gather with each other is in our hearts. That is the gathering of believers. The gathering of those who have gone before us to understand that they are with us and we are with them. Though we came after them, we are still with them. And though they came before us, they are with us. How much more so should we be able to be with each other where we are blessed to be synced in time? So I have three questions. Number one, where do you gather with the believers? Is it in your heart or merely in this place? Number two, sorry, I should be more aware that you're having to write these questions. I have to do it every week, and it's terrible. <laughs> Number two, what are the easiest ways in your life for you specifically to forsake the gathering of believers? And then lastly, is your investment in people a transitory one, one that comes and goes, or is it transcendent? All right, guys, go discuss.